Well, there's a tension which you find within the African-American elite. On the one hand, you want to be integrated. On the other hand, every diaspora group has gone through this. Actually, the racial melting pot is bubbling away. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Epidemics don't really have a start date. We don't really know when the first human being contracted COVID-19. It also increasingly feels as though we won't have a clear end date. Perhaps for each of us, the moment when we finally get an effective vaccine into our arms will feel like the end of a pandemic, but there won't be one day in which we can declare the end of a pandemic worldwide. Even if we ultimately manage to eradicate COVID-19, we likely won't know the exact time or day. And yet, it has now been about a year since COVID-19 has started to dominate headlines and enter the consciousness of ordinary people. In that year, I have argued our economic system, which is a, a mixture between capitalism and a strong welfare state, has actually proven to be remarkably effective. There has obviously been a lot of suffering, a lot of unemployment, and so on. But our economic system has ensured that we all continue to have water and electricity and internet and food. And the welfare state has done, in most countries, a very good job at ensuring that people who lost their job were still able to pay rent and get food. In fact, the poverty rate in the United States has gone down over the course of the last 12 months. As we are approaching the one-year anniversary of COVID consciousness, as it were, I've also been thinking about the flip side, Phil, about the failure of our political institutions, of our societies. It's about a year now since every writer was saying that we need to create a system to test, trace, and isolate. A system to find who has COVID-19, to track with whom they were in contact, and to put them in isolation from others. And a few countries have managed to build something like that. But most countries haven't. We still don't have that practically anywhere in North America or Western Europe. By the standards of a year ago, we just gave up. Now, I could go through a more detailed list of all of the failings of various institutions over the last 12 months. The Trump administration would top the list, but there are many other players from the World Health Organization, which downplayed the pandemic at the beginning, to the CDC, which created a faulty test for COVID in the early days, to public health experts who gave deeply misguided guidance about masks, to the European Union, which penny-pinched so that Europe is now far behind other countries in being able to give life-saving vaccines to its citizens. There's a lot of failure and a lot of blame to go around. But at the deepest level, this is a question of lacking collective purpose, lacking urgency, and inability to confront societal challenges. I don't yet have answers as to what caused that. I certainly don't yet have answers as to what remedied that. But I think this is the, the deepest and the most serious, the most alarming 
social and political lesson we should take from this year. It is something that I will continue to chew on, not just for the next year, but for many years. And I hope that you too will take some time to confront this shocking insight. Michael Lind is one of the co-founders of New America and now a professor of public policy at the LBJ School in Austin, Texas. He is one of the great iconoclastic thinkers of American life. He's the sort of person who has probably influenced my thinking just about as much as any living writer today, even for all I disagree with him nine out of 10 times. We had a very wide-ranging conversation about how to understand the basic structure of conflict in American society today, the way that he has described it in his last book about a new class war is a kind of managerial overclass constituted probably of many of the people who listen to this podcast, of people who've gone to good universities and have fancy postgraduate degrees and make a nice living as middle upper middle class professionals. In his view, a lot of society is directed towards their benefit and what we've seen in Kuwait is a rebellion or a reaction against that. That might take a really negative and dangerous turn as it did in the Trump years, but that in some ways needs to succeed if America should actually give most of its citizens a decent life. It's a provocative conversation. It's a wide ranging one. I find myself still sort of thinking through a lot of it even after we've had that conversation. So I'm sure you'll agree with parts, you'll disagree with parts, but you'll come away smarter and more engaged in these topics. So I hope you give it a listen. Michael Lind, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So we've been talking to each other for a long time. We're at New America together, which you co-founded. And so I've been influenced by thinking for a little while, but uh, I've actually been going back to some of your writing from before I knew you, which is very interesting as well. And I want to start with one of the things that you said a while ago, that I think is very interesting, which is, but we tend to think about America in terms of sort of white and non-white, and that tendency has only increased, right, where people think of America as a white supremacist society in its essence, where they really think that that is the main division between white people and what's called people of color. You argued in the 1990s that actually that's a wrong way of thinking about America, that the deeper historical division is between black and non-black, which might sound like a different way of phrasing it, but it really changes where we think Latinos, for example, fit in. What do you mean by that? And how do you think that remains relevant or perhaps has proven to be right or wrong in the last couple of decades? Well, in my book, uh, The Next American Nation in 95, and also in an article I did for the New York Times Magazine called The Beige and the Black, I indeed made the argument that the basic distinction is between black and non-black, not between whites and non-whites or people of color. And the reason has to do with the strategy of the uh, white American elite in the 19th and 20th centuries, or even if you go back to the 18th centuries. If you look at other nations in this hemisphere that had large African-derived populations uh, in the West Indies, in Brazil, for example, where the white settlers were outnumbered by African-Americans in the broadest sense, they tended to create divisions within the African-descended population. So you had mulattoes, quadroons, negroes, 
and so on, to carry out divide and rule. The United States was unusual because uh, you had a white majority nationwide from the very beginning, and so that allowed the Southern planter class to unite whites against blacks. And so you had this very rigid distinction between blacks and everyone else in a fairly elastic definition of whites. For much of the 19th century, there was a definition whether Celts and Slavs could be true Americans. Uh, All the way until the 1900s, much of the American elite claimed the United States was an Anglo-Germanic Protestant nation. The definition of white gradually expanded to include Irish Catholics, Eastern Europeans, Jews, and so on. Arguably, it is expanding now. And this is not a matter of government data or anything. It's a matter of kind of popular consciousness to include so-called white adjacent groups, such as uh, many Hispanics and Asian Americans. So in a sense, this is, you know, a very pessimistic view. That is, the rest of society will tend to define itself by not being of African descent. But on the other hand, it's somewhat optimistic because it means that we're not divided perpetually between the five official racial groups of the U.S. census. Yeah, I think it's interesting to think about the ways in which the story is very optimistic and the ways in which it's really quite strikingly pessimistic. I guess there's two sort of challenges that I would try to think through from today. One of them is that in voting behavior, some of what you're saying seems to have been coming true in the last four years, for example. I still think one of the striking things about the 2020 election is the extent to which supposed or so-called people of color have actually moved towards Trump in these last four years, something really quite striking. And of course, we see in the failure, for example, of a referendum about affirmative action in California, which is majority-minority, that so-called people of color aren't quite behaving in the way that they're expected to by a political and progressive class. On the other hand, you know, the whole American elite seems to have bought into this idea that the fundamental division of America is white and non-white. And I guess there's a question as to how much that will percolate down into society. So whether it's possible for those elites to remake America in the image of the distinction that they think defines America, even if historically you're right, that it was actually a slightly different one that did. And the second challenge, perhaps, is what that means for Black Americans. You know, the most pessimistic reading of what you're saying is that they will always remain the underclass, that they are the necessary ethnic other that makes it all the easier for Latinos or for uh, Indian Americans or for Chinese Americans to integrate. But there has also been a very substantial growth of uh, Black middle and upper middle and upper class. And so I guess I wonder whether that should make us a little bit more optimistic about the role that African-Americans will play in America's future. Is that just sort of part of the division of Black and non-Black America? And there's just some space for, even in that sort of dyadic vision, for Black Americans who are affluent and so on? Or does that actually challenge that division? Well, there's a tension which you find within the African-American elite over, on the one hand, you want to be integrated In society, on the other hand, you want to keep your own distinct identity forever. And every diaspora group in the U.S. has gone through this tension. Historically, in the United States, we say the melting pot is over as a metaphor. Actually, the racial melting pot is bubbling away. By the third or fourth generation, Americans of Hispanic descent 
don't speak Spanish. They marry outside of the so-called Hispanic category. Same is true even earlier for uh, people so-called Asian Americans. I say so-called because it's ridiculous, you know, saying Indians and Filipinos and Chinese people are all the same race. So I think there's a great deal of resistance to not only integration, but ultimately amalgamation, because your group, to the extent that it is distinct, will eventually vanish into this larger, fluid, mixed-race population. The only exceptions to that in American history so far, where you don't have external segregation, as in the case of African Americans for much of history, have been religious groups like Mennonites and Amish and Hasidic Jews and so on, where there's a deep religious taboo against outmarriage. But the truth is, outmarriage, intermarriage is going up rapidly among uh, African Americans. Uh, it's not quite at the levels of Hispanic Americans and Asian Americans. This, by the way, was Frederick Douglass's uh, vision. His second wife was a white American, and he predicted in a few centuries these categories would cease to exist, black or white. So I think this is a huge crisis for the American elite because it's all organized, universities, government contracting, voting rights, all of that, on the idea that there are these five official races that were actually created arbitrarily by the Office of Management and Budget in the Nixon and Ford years. They were tasked with coming up with categories for the census, and they came up with non-Hispanic white, Hispanic or Latino, Black American or later African American, Asian and Pacific Islander and Native American. Our university curricula, all of our job classifications are based on this, and the social reality of the racial melting pot is undermining it for African-Americans as well as for everyone else. Yeah, and that story I certainly find to be helpful. I guess one of the great questions that I find myself asking at the moment in general on the sort of official bureaucratic interpretation of racial categories, but also on many more normative questions, is whether a political and cultural elite that dominates the airwaves can sort of impose its view of the matter on the bulk of the population or whether it will ultimately founder on reality. I mean, that goes together with my sense, which I shared before on the podcast, that the sort of culture war that we have at the moment is far deeper and more entrenched among the elite than it is among ordinary people. That when you look at polls of average Americans, they are far less divided about complicated issues from police violence to even abortion than are, you know, the people who are highly educated and who really determine the policies of both sort of the Democrats and the New York Times on the one side and sort of the Republicans and Fox News on the other side. So the question then becomes, can these mutually hostile elites manage to sort of imbue their attitudes in a share of the population and generalize that conflict? Or in this case, can the sort of more left-leaning elites manage to imbue this official bureaucratic vision of five races on the rest of the population? Or will the sociological reality always confound that? And that's not actually how most Americans think about it. What do you think about that? I think most Americans are ignoring it. I have you know, people of several races in my extended family. When I returned to Austin, Texas after 30 years, it had been a very segregated society. And it strikes me, it still is in the elite area. It's uh, disproportionately white, the very gentrified area. 
If you go out to the working class, lower middle class suburbs, what you find is it's incredibly integrated. And it is culturally integrated as two. Accent is important, I think. That is, you now have a situation, which is new in my life, having been born into segregated Texas, that if you're speaking to someone on the phone in Austin, Texas, you have no idea what that person's race is. They can be black, you know, Hispanic. I mean, Texas is a majority non-white state now. So what you have actually is our stereotypes about African-Americans, that they're inner city. That's not true. The vast majority of them live in the suburbs and excerpts now, that they're isolated in black neighborhoods, only true for minority, that they're poor, not true. Majority are working class. So if you drive outside of these big cities where our intelligentsia and donors and politicians live to the suburbs, you find this melting pot bubbling away in these working class suburbs. And this is something that is not being captured. It's kind of like a rotten borough system, to use the British term. I mean, as long as you have set-asides and affirmative action, then you're going to have people who are part German, part Polish, and part Mexican identify themselves as Hispanic, right, to get the job or to get the set-aside. So I think, you know, there's an economic incentive, ironically, for members of the elite. So, so far, we have not actually had a president or a vice president who is a descendant of American slaves. We went along with the fiction that Barack Obama is a black American rather than a mixed race person of white descent. Evidently, he has some slave ancestors, so maybe I should qualify that. But he's also the descendant of slave owners. Kamala Harris is of West Indian and a South Asian descent, right? So you find, and I don't want to get into many more categories, but you know, people come to mind, there are people who are impersonating the favored or protected groups under affirmative action. And at some point, I think if you look at the history of other countries in this hemisphere that are multiracial, like Mexico and Brazil, at some point it just breaks down. For example, in the early 19th century, Mexico had the Costa system. They had all of these elaborate castes, you know, half white, half Indian, half white, half black. And eventually, there was so much intermarriage, it just, it just collapsed. So I'm optimistic in that sense. So that, I think, starts to set us up for the thesis of your last book, which has been discussed very broadly, The New Class War. So when I look at the rise of populism over the last four or five years, I think I see it in rather different terms from how you would explain the appeal, and you're not a defender of it, you're not an advocate of it at all, but how you would explain the appeal of people you know, like Donald Trump and other populists around the world. So how do you think we should make sense of this, this populist moment, um, which will sadly stay with us even after Donald Trump has left the White House? Well, I think you should immediately push from your mind any early 20th century parallels to my mind, and this has guided me in making fairly accurate predictions, Latin America is a much better parallel than interwar Europe and Italy and Germany. And a friend of mine who was a Latin American scholar back when Fujimori, the Japanese president of Peru. I'm, I'm not sure that I've shared this before on this podcast, but my favorite fact about Fujimori is that he, as he's saying, was Japanese-Peruvian. 
and there's some significant Japanese and Chinese ethnic minorities in Peru, but the country and his own supporters were sufficiently non-plugged-in, let's say, that they actually would call him El Chino or the Chinese, and he played along with it. So he would have these campaign appearances in which he would wear sort of traditional Chinese hats, and they would play him in with a kind of like traditional-ish <laughs> Chinese music that you might hear at like a minor league baseball game if you have, you know, an Asian-American player coming out. Well, from an American point of view, he was an Asian and Pacific Islander, so that was perfectly legitimate. But, but my point of the story was this scholar told me he was on a train with a lot of poor Indians in Peru, and, you know, the entire American elite was in favor of, you have to remind me again, the, the novelist Mario Vargas Llosa, right? was his rival. Yeah, his opponent in 1989 or 1990. Yeah, a very wealthy, you know, European descent family. And so the Indians told my friend, therefore Fujimori, and of course my friend was shocked, why would you be for Fujimori, the quasi-dictatorial, plebiscitary, Caesarist figure? Because he's for the little ones, right? He's for the little people. And this is why from the beginning, and I've been accused of downplaying Trump's bigotry and racism and so on, but I've done so in order to emphasize the fact that I see him and the demagogues in America's future, if we do not make important changes, as being more like, you know, Juan Perón or Fujimori or people like that, who have a kind of cross-racial, class-based appeal, and comparing them to Nazi, you know, national socialism, I think this is, you, you might as well compare it to Byzantine Caesaropapism. It's a completely misleading analogy. And it's a bad analogy, and it won't prepare us for these figures, which are destructive, damaging figures. So let me put the question this way. Clearly, Donald Trump has racist rhetoric, and clearly he has, again and again, leaned into support uh, from the sort of ethno-nationalist far right. Do you think that's a strategic mistake? Do you think that he would have been more successful and would have been more likely to win re-election if he had softened those kinds of appeals? Well, you have to look at the whole record. And again, I'm not defending Trump. He's the first president who committed the United States to a global ban against laws against homosexuality, right? I mean, he's, he's always been pro-gay, you know, in terms of gay rights. Trans rights is controversial, but that's a question other than, you know, like decriminalizing gay and lesbian behavior. He had a big following among uh, working class black Americans, you know, that he lost. So what happened was he had the choice when he was elected, and there actually was a goodwill period of a few weeks where Chuck Schumer was saying, well, we can work with him on infrastructure, things like that. He could have gone for the Ross Perot voters with a lot of you know, infrastructure, bringing back manufacturing, things like that, without this racial cultural baggage. Instead, he went the Buchanan route. So he ended up being like Patrick Buchanan, which was just pure culture war. It was really a Southern politics rather than a Midwestern politics. He was elected because he appealed to these fairly socially moderate Midwestern working class Democrats, white working class Democrats in the industrial states. He governed as a Karl Rove type Southern culture warrior, you know, mobilizing white resentment against non-whites. So, again, unless we have adequate reforms to break this doom loop between the establishment and the demagogues, we will have a populist demagogue, possibly a mixed race or non-white populist demagogue. 
who does have much more appeal. Yeah, this has struck me as the most plausible hypothesis for a very long time. The populist I live in fear of in the United States is a right-wing populist who softens Trump's racism, who softens the most extreme forms of culture war, who probably moves a little bit to the left on the economy, and who happens to be Latino or Black, and who therefore would be much harder to accuse of being racist, who can stoke some of that resentment, but in a much more mellifluous way. And I think if the Republicans stumble into that kind of candidate, they're going to clean up and they could have a majority for a significant period of time. But tell us, you refer to this doom loop between the establishment and populism. What do you mean by that doom loop? And why do you think that what's going on, as the title of your last book suggests, is this sort of new class war? What does that mean? Well, I've been arguing since before Trump even entered the race in 2015 that we're now in a system in which the left-right division is less important than the insider-outsider division. And the insiders uh, are the college-educated people, particularly ones with advanced uh, graduate professional degrees, who have secure jobs, often in large corporations and, and banks connected to the world economy. The outsiders include not only most of the working class, uh, whether native and white or immigrant or non-white, but a lot of downwardly members, downwardly mobile members of what I call the overclass. That is, people with college degrees working at Starbucks who provide a big constituency for the Democratic Socialists of America, for the Bernie Sanders movement. But you also have small business owners who fear being proletarianized, and they're a big constituency for uh, like the reopening rallies, and to some degree, for this cult of personality of Trump. So what's the nature of this class war between them? So, you know, when you say that really the political conflicts between insiders who have as professional degrees and so on, what class war seems like a big term for that, right? I mean, I buy that they have entrenched interests. I buy that they have their own worldview to some extent, for obviously not a homogeneous one. Why call that a class war? Tell us a little bit more about that. Well, it affects both wages and benefits. With respect to wages, the American elite has basically spent the entire last 30, 40 years trying to devise ways to increase the profit share without necessarily increasing productivity through technology by driving down wages through a variety of mechanisms. There's offshoring to low-wage countries. Immigration doesn't affect most middle-class and upper-class people, but it has indeed replaced native workers in a lot of areas like construction and in meatpacking and so on. You have the reclassification of full-time workers as contract workers who have fewer rights and fewer benefits. And then on the benefits side, as the late Gore Vidal said, America has socialism for the rich and capitalism for the poor. If you're a college-educated, upper-middle-class person, and, and you and I belong to what I call the overclass, we generally work for organizations that have very generous health insurance, family benefits, things like that. If you're a high school-educated wage earner, particularly if you're a gig worker, you're not a full-time employee, the unions have been crushed by the Republicans, but also with the indifference of the Democrats, who now represent Silicon Valley and Wall Street as their base. There are fewer private sector union members in the U.S. now than there were under Herbert Hoover, a little more than 6%. So I think there's an enormous and growing gap between the experience of work and of benefits and wages of the high school educated majority of all races and the elite. 
So what's the solution to that? As I see it, you see two distinct dangers, right? Uh, you see one danger as sort of a perpetuation of status quo, which is basically that the sort of professional upper middle class continues to run the country in their benefit with very bad results. I see the second danger as you portray it is a victory by a kind of Trumpist populism and the degradations that that would bring. What's the third alternative, the way out of this, which allows us to break the doom loop between the establishment and the populists? Well, the most likely scenario, unfortunately, is that the present system continues and the elite, we simply become kind of an oligarchical country and uh, like many Latin American republics, and now and then some television celebrity or, or plutocrat you know, may win, reward a few cronies, have a little cult of personality, uh, have some patronage goodies dispensed to the followers, but then get kicked out again by the oligarchy. And there can be good reforms by the elite. They can extend health insurance more. They can have family leave, things like that. But if you look at the Democratic Party's proposals, they're all about extending money without extending power. So what I mean by that? Well, the way to extend power is actually to bring back organized labor and collective bargaining. And right now, the neoliberal Democrats, their idea is, well, that's too hard. We're just going to give everybody, you know, like a $1,000 tax credit, right? And maybe they'll be happy. And so one of the points I make in my book, The New Class War, is people are not purely economic animals. If you freeze them out of all power, including in their own workplaces, and if they feel they have no power in politics other than casting an ineffectual vote every few years. Furthermore, if the media portray their religious values as horribly benighted and backward and parochial, then you're not going to win over their affection by having a one or $2,000 tax credit every year. So the alternative, I don't think it's likely, but I think we have to fight for it. It's restructuring the economic system. It's having a system of countervailing power and checks and balances in the economy and in the media. And this is something that our neoliberal and right-wing libertarian elite is not interested in because they do not want to have to share power with worker representatives in the workplace they do not control. And in the media, they do not want to have to deal with rabbis and mullahs and priests and pastors when they're, you know, doing programming. They used to have to do that in this country in the 50s and 60s. They don't anymore. It's really interesting you were quoting the line earlier about uh, socialism for the rich and capitalism for the poor. I mean, obviously, you know, the American college experience is incredibly socialist in terms of, you know, you're having to pay your way in, buy a very expensive package, and then, you know, you get, you know, delicious food and useless gyms and all of those things on demand. Once you're in, sort of, all of these riches await you. And, you know, so everybody goes into huge debt in order to live in a resort for four years. So that's one element of it. I think what's interesting is that even when we talk about unions, you seem to now be having socialism for the rich and capitalism for the poor, which say that even as union membership is at an all-time low and is eroding for a huge portion of a working class, where are unions being founded? At Vox Media, at New York Media, at Google, right? So it is precisely the sort of upper middle class people who are doing pretty well, who are unionizing and who do particularly, you know, what the people at Google really want 
is not a higher salary. And I'm sure they'll, they'll negotiate for that. And that's perfectly appropriate. Google makes a lot of money. If its employees can negotiate for more money, I have no problem with that. But they do actually also really want that co-determination. What they really want is to be able to get people fired who say things they don't like. And that's been true, I think, to, to a shocking extent of unions within journalistic media as well. It's a strange development. But, but let me push back a little bit anyway. I was talking to Douglas Alexander, a really interesting British Labour politician who we should get on the podcast, by the way. So look out for him in a future episode. And he was telling me about campaigning in his old seat up in Scotland in a very working class town. I think it used to be a mining community at the last election. And he said that what the Labour Party tried to offer them is a trip to the sort of old mining museum in the next town along and a kind of form of working class nostalgia. And for virtually everybody in that constituency, that world was just completely gone. You know, what they wanted is a trip to Euro Disney. You know, it was just a different world of feelings and symbols. And that idea that the Labour Party still often had, that these communities in the Northeast of England, you know, the sort of red wall, which was supposed to always deliver these seats that crumbled and that Boris Johnson took, that that was based on this sort of deep historical and class sentiment that we are workers and so our party is the Labour Party and we don't trust these Tories and so on. And he thinks that, that whole cultural world is completely gone, which I think is very interesting. But I think it also challenges your solution a little bit. You know, I get how you have a sense of belonging in a union that goes beyond just the economic incentives. When you go to the factory every morning at 8 a.m. together with 500 other people and it is a collectivist culture, Right. I absolutely think that people who drive for Uber should get much better benefits, and I share many of your concerns about it. I'm also struck by the extent to which, when you chat with drivers, they really do quite seem to like the job, and they do seem to like the flexibility of it. They seem to like precisely the lack of collectivity, the like that they can switch on the meter and switch it off whenever they want. I was talking to one driver recently who's from Guatemala who said, this is amazing, now I can be home with my family three months of a year and just work a lot in another nine months. And I decide when to go home to Guatemala and have a boss to talk to, to agree on that. Now, perhaps you can preserve some of those things, but I just wonder whether the structure of a modern economy is conformable with an economic form of advocating for your collective interests that was based on the idea of relatively collectivized jobs, which don't seem to reflect the reality anymore. Well, I think you've, with all due respect, bought into the neoliberal trap that you have the choice between like lunch bucket factory worker jobs in 1950, which are gone forever because of technology, even without outsourcing, and essentially no regulation and no worker empowerment. I'm in favor of all kinds of regulation, to be clear, but I don't know whether sort of the form it would naturally take as a union. The union, I think, is the form that is developed in the 19th century in these big factories with a very collective form of work and some collective form of life. And whatever it is that allows us to ensure that Uber drivers get their due, whether it is regulation, whether it is an activist government, whether it is some kind of new form of self-organization, perhaps, it's just the union doesn't strike me as necessarily the natural model to that reality. Let me just set forth my own personal views on this. Enterprise-based bargaining, the American system from the 1930s onwards, was doomed from the beginning. 
That means that you organize every company one by one, or you have a plant-based, site-based collectivization, collective bargaining. That's gone. It could never succeed. The only countries in uh, Europe that have functioning collective bargaining have one of three systems. One is sectoral bargaining. Representatives of all of the workers in a sector negotiate with federations of all of the employers in a sector brokered by the government. And then for the next couple of years, they set minimum standards, which you know you can vary. So that's the most common type. The other two are co-determination, as in Germany, where you have members of the board of the company represent workers as well as uh, investors. And the third method, which is the most relevant for a lot of these jobs like gig workers, are wage boards. And the wage board was invented about 1900 and was adapted by all the English-speaking countries, including states in the United States. The way this works is Winston Churchill, as a young liberal, was a great champion of wage boards. Uh, The argument is that what used to be called sweated trades, that is decentralized work, where you're not in a factory, you know, in those days it was piecework sewing by women at home. The normal strikes and sit-downs and all that doesn't work. So the government appoints a wage board, and it has representatives of workers, representatives of employers, and maybe representatives of consumers and government. So those are the three models. Andrew Cuomo, to his credit, rather than try to push a higher minimum wage through the Albany legislature in New York, revived this old New York wage board statute uh, for fast food workers. But the thing is, there is still voice. Even if you're an Uber driver, you get to vote for the person who represents you in the negotiations with the companies. So there's some sense of power. The other thing, which I think it really should be a great cause, I don't know why progressives, well, I do know why, they're being funded by Wall Street and Silicon Valley billionaires. That's why. The U.S. is one of the few OECD countries that has at-will employment. Your boss cannot fire you because you're black or Jewish or, you know, female, but they can fire you for any other reason without any due process whatsoever. So I think we should outlaw at-will employment. There should be standard minimal default due process before you can be fired. We also need legislation to rein in HR, as you point out. You now have the irony that you have these upper middle class junior managers wanting a union so they can fire more of their conservative Republican co-workers they don't like because HR isn't doing enough of the job, right? So let me just be clear. Most Americans now and forever will work in the non-traded domestic service sector. There are going to be very few factory workers. There will be enormous numbers of home health aides who may drive from house to house. But nevertheless, there are all kinds of things you can do to give them power and voice and agency, which they don't have without going back to the old AFL-CIO system of 1950. That's very interesting and persuasive. I wonder what the sort of larger political takeaway is if all of that doesn't happen. So as you're looking forward to the next 10 or 20 years, Presuming, as you're saying, that you know some of that might happen to some extent, but the most likely path is a lack of change in those areas. What will happen to our politics? Will it go down the spiral between sort of preservers of the establishment and more destructive populists like Trump? Or do you see a kind of way out? What do you think is in store for us? 
Well, I think Biden got off to the wrong foot. All of the conservative websites are showing this speech he made where he said, we're going to target the money for the next recovery plan to women and then a list of official minorities, right? So if you watch that out of context, I mean, maybe there's more to it. It sounds like if you're white or male and you have a business, you're at the back of the line. The federal government is not going to give you any money. Right. You know, that is, we've decided we're not going to fund white males who own businesses who also have wives who are female. Right. These white males, white women have not voted for the Democratic Party, if I'm not mistaken, since the 1960s, because these are families. Only very strange college educated people think that they have more in common with the person of the same sex than they do with their spouse of a different sex. To normal people, that's just bizarre, but this is the ideology of the American overclass, right? That if you're a husband, you have more in common with unrelated men than you do with your own wife in terms of political and economic interests and things like that, culture and so on. So I think if you have the combination of a stagnant economy, the Democratic Party is now pushing, as it did in California with affirmative action, to legalize anti-white and also anti-Asian American discrimination and anti-male discrimination. They're just, they want this to be totally legal. They do it anyway. All institutions do it, universities and businesses and so on. They circumvent the laws against uh, racial discrimination in order to get numerical quotas, you know, that they want for various ethnic groups and women. But they just want to make this formal. And that means, if you think you have the Proud Boys are a problem now, right? If they legalize a system of systematic, overt, explicit discrimination against whites, then you're going to have, you know, Trump is going to look like Nelson Rockefeller, right, compared to what is coming. It's going to really, really be bad. The left does not understand the demography of this country. In 2050, they say, oh, it'll be a non-white majority country. Well, that's assuming all Hispanics and all of Asian Americans will identify as people of color, which is a mistake to begin with politically. But it's also, they don't know the numbers. You'll have like 49% will be white in 2050. That's almost half. If you look at the white working class alone defined by high school education, the white working class alone in the year 2050 will be bigger than Hispanics and African-Americans combined in 2050 one class of the white population. So this idea that the white working class is going to be extinct and we can just ignore them and screw them over and we'll have this great glorious future of college-educated white people and people of color, it's demographically doomed and you're simply providing ammunition to the worst forms of demagogy in the future. How do you think this picture fits in with other countries. You know, it strikes me that there's some of this which resonates in Germany or Denmark or Japan. There's also a lot of it that seems quite specifically American. And you are primarily an American thinker. You have an encyclopedic knowledge and a very, very broad set of visions. But I do think that sort of, even though you've written interesting things about international relations and so on, you know, the center of your thoughts really is in America. But how do you think that story would need to be adapted to make sense of what's going on in some of those countries? Or are the disanalogies, in fact, one of the reasons why those countries may end up on a better path? Well, as I argue in the new class war, I think there is a 
convergence between Western Europe and North America that does not exist between the United States and Eastern Europe. I'm very skeptical about people, you know, making comparisons with Poland and Hungary and these ex-communist countries for a couple of reasons. One, they are, have been countries of outward migration. That is, you know, they're very homogeneous and they're shrinking partly because of low birth rates, but partly because they're moving to other parts, usually Western Europe. Also, they had this long history of fascism and communism. So they just have different political cultures. I do think you can make parallels between the U.S. and the U.K. and Germany and France and Italy, because the Western European countries, and for some time, this is not new, have been countries of inward migration. Historically, they were countries of outward migration. Uh, but at least since World War II, from the British Commonwealth, you had Turkish guest workers in Germany and so on. You know, they've become more and more multiracial. So I think there's some parallels there. What should somebody who agrees with you do? It strikes me that it's not really clear what the path forward is in terms of political engagement. You seem to have given up mostly on the Democratic Party. Uh, the Republican Party is in the grips of Trumpism. You know, if you buy the analysis that what we're engaged in is a new class war and that you should resist the total victory of the sort of American overclass, what does that look like as a practical or political proposition? Well, the practical approach is to weaken the two parties and strengthen factions and caucuses within them. That is, when the United States system works, we essentially the country, obviously, is 330 million people, deeply diverse and divided. The only way it works was when the two parties which we have as an artifact of the first-past-the-post-electoral system that we inherited from Britain were coalitions of de facto smaller parties, and you had shifting kaleidoscopic cross-party coalitions between factions. So there wouldn't have been a New Deal or a civil rights uh, revolution if you hadn't had you know, liberal Republicans teaming up with pro-civil rights Democrats against segregationist Democrats and so on. Beginning with Newt Gingrich, and then unfortunately continuing with uh, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, both parties have tried to impose British-type parliamentary discipline on their parties which is going to lead to an explosion if it is not done so already. So I think what we need to do is weaken the leadership. Well, you have to do two things. For one thing, we have to weaken the presidency. The presidency is a winner-take-all, all-or-nothing office. Either you win or you lose. So that's just a recipe for civil war. If the winner-take-all president has vast executive discretionary power, so we need to move as much policy away from the presidency to Congress. And then within Congress, we need to strengthen pro-worker factions in both parties, the Democrats and the Republicans. And there are some, it's, it's a small group, it may not be influential, but you know, there, there's a movement towards a, a more pro-worker republicanism. You know, you have the traditional labor liberals and some of the democratic socialists for that matter in the Democratic Party, and that they have to be able to buck their party leaders and to resist them and to collaborate across party lines. Now, Josh Hawley made a fool of himself and may have ended his career, Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri, by going along with this claim that the election was stolen. But shortly before that, he teamed up with Bernie Sanders to push you know, $2,000 relief checks. 
So this is called, as you know, transpartisanship. It is not bipartisanship. Bipartisanship is splitting the difference between left and right. Transpartisanship is case-by-case specific alliances on particular issues by people who otherwise disagree with and reject each other. Michael Lind, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.